Tonight we're going to examine Exodus 19 and 20 all the way through chapter 20, verse 21. Culturally speaking, the American evangelical community, which I'm going to differentiate from the true church of Jesus Christ, but the American evangelical community tends to have a battle line over a particular issue, and that is, issue is the public display of the Ten Commandments, that that is somehow a litmus test for spirituality. To the evangelical, again, not the true church, but just those who kind of loosely associate themselves with evangelicalism, but to the evangelical, the display of the Ten Commandments indicates somehow that, that our nation is headed in the right direction and that if everyone would just start following the Ten Commandments, God would be pleased with our nation once again. And to everyone else, the display of the Ten Commandments is decried as insensitive and intolerant because they represent only the Judeo-Christian God and this leaves out everyone else, such as Buddhists or Sikhs or Muslims or Wiccans. And we certainly can't forget the atheists, those who believe that everything and everyone came from nothing to no one. So we can't leave them out. Uh, generally speaking, though, the popular level arguments for both sides are steeped in such ignorance that you almost can't have a reasonable conversation with them. To the evangelical community, again, differentiated from the true church, we would remind them that no one has ever been saved by following the Ten Commandments. This is a false gospel of salvation by works, and so getting more people to see a public display of the Ten Commandments is not changing anyone's heart at a spiritual level. To everyone else, the assumption that the Judeo-Christian God, as they like to call him, exposes the fact that they're really all polytheists. Worship whatever God you want. And so they're polytheists in, in the same way that the ancient Egyptians were, the ancient Babylonians, and so forth. So let's be good students of the word. Let's try to shed some light on this topic using the only authority over that topic, and that is the word itself. And we've been touring quickly through Exodus in our Pentateuch series. And now we come to Exodus 19 and 20, what we're calling Israel's Constitution, and just as a reminder, always keeping the whole Pentateuch in context, Exodus is all about Israel, and Israel is all about being God's chosen means to restore and redeem the world, to be able to ultimately fulfill what we called in our Genesis series the central directive of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which is that a perfected mankind would be the vice regents and co-rulers with God on the perfect earth and enjoy him and his creation forever. That's the perfect purpose of Israel. So tonight, to organize our thoughts, we're going to hit some really broad ideas to try to be wise concerning particularly the Ten Commandments. And so we'll look at this text through the lens of a personal posture. So first we will sit, then we will stand, then we will walk, and then we will run. And that will tell us kind of our prioritization tonight. So first we'll sit. Let's sit to ponder, how do you think about the law of Moses? How do you think about the Ten Commandments as a 21st century Christian? Now, in our third message introducing the Pentateuch, I did a basic orientation to the law of Moses in general. And I think that part of that bears repeating to help us more specifically know how to think about the Ten Commandments. There were four parts to this basic orientation, and I'll just touch on these quickly. First of all, the law for the Israelites was not about earning spiritual salvation. The law for the Israelites was not about earning spiritual salvation. It was, however, the means by which God's people were to live out their relationship to God as a witness to a watching world. The law existed to allow the Israelites to live a life that was different from the people around them. If somebody asked them the question, how is your God different? They already had the answer. They could see the life that was lived. They could see the law that they had. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, this is the question that was meant to elicit was what God has given a law such as this one? And there isn't another. It was meant to prompt a desire for God by the surrounding nations. The second part of our basic orientation we did is we said that we don't divide the law into relevant and irrelevant laws. We can't divide the law into those two categories, relevant and irrelevant. If you do any study on your own, you'll invariably see scholars dividing the laws of God as given through Moses into three categories, into the civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. 
And like any sort of propaganda, if something is said long enough and for enough generations, it's accepted as, as canonical truth without any question. But that's an artificial division that was first proposed by Thomas Aquinas, who was a Catholic priest of the 13th century. It was carried on by John Calvin and by other reformers who believed in one overarching covenant of grace which unites the Old and the New Testament. And so there had to be a a method, a tool to unite the Old and the New Testaments to maintain that continuity. And they would say that the civil and ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Christ and superseded by Christ. And we would totally agree with that. But that the moral law continues to be binding on the Christian. Well, we identified numbers of problems with that view. I spent quite a bit of time on this, but just briefly... First of all, those three categories aren't found in Scripture. It's a completely artificial distinction. And just because somebody with a lot of letters after his name says it doesn't make it true. It has to be in Scripture. The second problem we saw is that there's no universal agreement on how to categorize individual laws. In fact, I walked through a couple of examples with you where in one sentence you have to say this part is civil, this section is ceremonial, and this last phrase is moral. It becomes ridiculous. And the last problem is, is we asserted that all of God's laws are moral in nature because to break any of God's laws is inherently immoral. So we don't divide the law into relevant and irrelevant laws. Third, in our basic orientation, we said that the law is given in covenant context for a specific situation. It was given in covenant context for this specific situation. God made covenant demands of Israel as they camped at the base of Mount Sinai. And these demands are based in his rescue of Israel from Egypt. And this type of relationship in the ancient Near East, we said, was often called the suzerain-vassal relationship or the sovereign-vassal relationship. The suzerain nation or king was bigger, superior. The vassal The conquered one, or the rescued one in this case, was expected to obey the laws of the suzerain. And in fact, the vassal nation was expected to appear before the suzerain on a regular basis. Why do we worship on a regular basis? Because God is our suzerain. We are the vassal and we appear before him regularly. They were expected to regularly reaffirm their loyalty and submission to the suzerain as well. And we spent some time on that. And finally, in our kind of basic orientation to the law, we said that the law is part of a covenant which is no longer in effect. We don't get to pick and choose. If we don't understand this, then we'll use the cafeteria approach to the law to pick and choose the ones we think still apply. But Genesis 3 is very clear in verses 24 and 25. I'm sorry, Galatians 3 So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We looked at Hebrews 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So that brings us to the question, then what about the Ten Commandments? If you have them hanging in your home, do you need to go home and take them down and hope that nobody notices? Well, let's keep looking. We've been seated to ponder how we're to think about the law and the Ten Commandments. And now we stand because our understanding is going to get, if I can put it this way, uncomfortably holy and disconcertingly divine. We're going to see God is making us more uncomfortable We stand in awe and worship of a God who gives his people a law, who has chosen the people from the dust and turned them into a nation to show himself to the rest of the nations. So let's look at the setup for the Ten Commandments first here. Really, it could be considered the preamble or the introduction to the Ten Commandments, and that is chapter 19. Chapter 19 tells us the significance, first of all, of the nation of Israel, and then the, how, how significant and important and awe-inspiring is the giving of the law. We are now three months after the Red Sea. Israel has encamped at the, at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses now goes to meet with God on the mountain, and God now officially forms his nation. They're not just a, an ethnic group now. Now they are a nation. And he tells Moses what he is to say to his chosen people. And here are the first words of God to his people officially. In Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians 
and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is a massively important statement. This statement right there is important enough that that some scholars take that as the theme of the Pentateuch. Now, we have respectfully disagreed with that, saying that kingdom is the theme of the Pentateuch and that this is a means to the kingdom. This is a means to it, but most definitely that's the theme of the book of Exodus right there. Those are the three key verses of the entire book. And it's packed with several important components. It has God's rightful claim on Israel. In verse 4, he rescued them. He set his love on them. He's blessed them with his very presence. And so he, he says, here's my claim on you. Here's why I get to be your suzerain, your sovereign. Not only does it have God's rightful claim on Israel, it has God's offer of blessing. In verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. This blessing is based conditionally on covenant loyalty. The statement has God's kingship over them. They will be a kingdom of priests, a a true theocracy with God as their true king. And they are the means by which the world will know the true and the living God. Not only the God's rightful claim on Israel, does it have God's offer of blessing, God's kingship over them, but then it also has God's sanctification of Israel, his setting apart of this nation. They're to be a holy nation. They're different. They're unique. Initially, meaning set apart from all other nations, but over the course of time as the law is given, there will be an implied promise of total future sanctification where each individual who comes to Yahweh by faith will be completed and will be made ultimately holy as God is holy. And of course, we only see this in and through Jesus Christ. So this statement is is packed with meaning. This is God's opening preamble, so to speak, for the Constitution, for the Ten Commandments. Now, these people didn't have to take this on. There was an implied choice here, but they enter into the covenant of God willingly. Verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. That is Israel signing on the dotted line. Yes, we're in. They enter into the covenant relationship. Now, the actual covenant is about to be given, and we should know this, all that happens that shows the greatness and the majesty and the uniqueness of what's about to happen here. In verse 9, God tells Moses that he's going to come speak to him out of a thick cloud so that the people can hear and believe. In verses 10 through 15, Moses is to consecrate the people for three days. They were to wash their clothes. They couldn't hear, hear, the, hear the, they couldn't come near the mountain on pain of death. They were to maintain the strictest moral purity. They were to wait for a, a heavenly trumpet blast, which in the Bible very often means that God is near or God is coming. And in verse 15 says they were to be ready for the third day. They were to consecrate themselves. Listen, this was not the idea of on Saturday night trying to decide whether I'm going to church or not the next morning. This is three days of getting ready to worship God, getting ready to appear before God. Very instructive for us. And in verses 16 through 20, after, after the three days of consecrating themselves and getting ready and washing themselves and, and being strictly moral, Thunders roar and lightning flashes and thick clouds roll in and a very loud trumpet blast comes. This is a heavenly trumpet blast and the people trembled and now Moses led them to the very foot of the mountain, verse 17, to meet God. This is fearsome. This is terrifying. And now the whole mountain is smoky and fiery and the whole mountain is trembling and the trumpet in verse 14 keeps getting louder and louder. And it just gets bigger and bigger. Verse 19, rather. Moses spoke to God, and God answered in thunder. And so this is a terrifying scene. And now God calls Moses up to the mountain, and he gives Moses one last warning to the people. Don't come near me. 
Obviously, because of the holiness of God. And with all of this buildup, Exodus 20, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness Where God was. The Ten Commandments, literally in verse 1, the Ten Words, represent what Yahweh expected of his faithful people. The first four commandments focus on the faithful Israelites' relationship to God. This is the these are the vertical commandments, and the last six focus on the relationship with fellow Israelites, the horizontal commandments. This is why Jesus brilliantly summarized the law in Matthew 22 as loyal love for God and selfless love for one another. That's all of the law. And in fact, the commandments cover all three possible areas of righteousness and sin. The thoughts that you may have, the words that you may speak, and the deeds that you may do. The first four, which are toward God, vertically covers all three. Commandments one and two In verses 3 through 6, cover your thoughts. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make a graven image for you and your thoughts to worship another god. Commandment 3 covers words concerning God and toward God. And commandment 4 covers your deeds, specifically on the Sabbath. The last six, which are toward society, horizontal commands, commandments 6, 7, and 8 cover your deeds... Commandment 9 covers your words, and commandment 10 covers your thoughts. And if you notice, this is what we've talked about before, a classic chiastic structure, the mirror image structure in which a key element, the key to the passage is found in the middle. Which commandment trains you in all of your thoughts and all of your words and all of your deeds? The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. They're the ones who teach you to obey the other nine. Or we could structure it like this, just to show that it covers all of life. Commandments 1, 2, 3, and 4, duty to God. Commandment 5, duty to family. And commandments 6 through 10, duty to the world. That's everything. So what are our our priorities in life? God, family, community. That's how we're to prioritize our lives. Chapter 20 has some of the major parts of an ancient Near East suzerain vassal treaty. When we get to Deuteronomy, we'll see that the entire book is set up in similar fashion. But some of those basic elements of a treaty included the name of the superior king, a historical prologue, stipulations or requirements of the treaty, and blessings and curses. And so this is something that's very familiar. This is a form that's familiar to the Israelites, certainly familiar to Moses. 
And it follows that form. We have the name of the superior king. The classic treaty began with the name of the stronger sovereign king who was graciously entering into covenant with the smaller nation. God begins in verse 2, I am Yahweh, your God. I am the Lord, your God. There's the name of the superior king. And then there's the historical prologue. The, the purpose of the historical prologue was to provide the context of the relationship between the two parties, the dealings that they have with one another. Now, just to be clear here, usually a suzerain vassal treaty, the historical prologue went something like this. I, this great king, came and conquered your nation. I decimated your women and children. I destroyed your villages. I burned your barns. I killed your animals. But I have graciously and kindly let some of you live. And so now you are going to serve me as slaves. And the, the, the vassals, they're, at that point, they're helpless. They'll say, great, okay, we're in. Uh, thank you for not killing us. This one is different This isn't based on having conquered and destroyed. The historical prologue is found in the second half of verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In this case, it was rescue. And he has now made them beholden to him based on love. This demonstrates that his demands are delivered in the context of an intimate relationship of electing love. He didn't just conquer them and make them his slaves. God has proven his love of Israel by his massive activity on their behalf, delivering them from the clutches of the most powerful nation on earth. This is so important for us theologically. Because if you'll notice this, the covenant demands that God gives are given to a people with whom he has already opened a relationship. It is not the means by which you enter that relationship. No Israelite was ever taught in this day that you need to obey the Ten Commandments in order to have a relationship with Holy God. The entry into the relationship with Yahweh was, is, always will be by faith. Then the law comes. And then you had the stipulations, the requirements. There were usually general stipulations and specific stipulations. General stipulation, there's just one, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This is exclusive loyalty and love. And then all the specific stipulations are the outworking of that love. That if you love God, this is what you'll do. Commandments 2 through 10. And then in the treaty structure, it has the blessings and curses. You see blessings for obedience. Verse 6. That God shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. Second half of verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And then you have the curses for disobedience. The end of verse 5. That I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. And in verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So this is a treaty. This is a covenant. This is why covenant is so important to our theology. This is how God has structured his relationship with mankind. Now, the Ten Commandments serve as this official covenant, but they're also the hub for every other law. They are the means of interpreting every other law, and every other law is the means of interpreting the Ten Commandments. They, they go back and forth. The detailed legislation of over 600 separate laws, which make up a lot of Exodus, a, a good chunk of Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, they're not just random sets of rules that don't have any relationship to the Ten Commandments. The rest of the law is the thorough, detailed, day-to-day application of the Ten Commandments to every area of the faithful Israelite's life. The details concerning worship and the sacrificial system tell the faithful Israelites how to live out the first four commandments, the vertical commandments, and the details regarding how you deal with marriage and family and servants and strangers in the land and, and money issues and neighbors. These are the, how the faithful Israelite lives out the horizontal final six commands. The Israelite culture was to be characterized by justice, equity, love, and care to show the world what a society ruled by God is like. And this is the same principle for us in the church 
nobody wants a church that's characterized by, by backstabbing and by gossip and by difficulty getting along with each other because what does it do? It ruins our witness to the world. It ruins our ability to share the gospel of Christ because a, a non-Christian says, you guys can't even get along with each other. How are you expecting me to, to say that you're the ones telling me about the love of God? And so these commandments were important. And this is why the massive quantity of land promises of the Old Testament are so vital. The land is a life platform on which this people would conduct their lives and impact and bless the surrounding nations. You know me, I've talked about land promises a lot. I actually outlined how long I thought it would take me to preach on every land promise in the Old Testament. I don't think I could do it in less than about 10 weeks. I just sat going through the Bible and finding this out. It's, it's a massive part of God's covenant with his people because the land was and it will be the stage upon which God works out his covenant promises with Israel and upon which the world sees the glory of God through this chosen nation. When is the first time in the Bible we see the importance of land? Genesis 1. When's the last time we see the importance of land? Revelation 22. It's important. And so the land will become the platform upon which Israel is to show the world a big God. Well, we were sitting to ponder how to think about the law of God. We've stood in awe of worship of a God who gives his people a law. And now let's walk. The metaphor of walking is used numerous times in both Old and New Testaments to speak of living your life in faithful obedience to God, walking with the Lord. So how was a faithful Israelite to walk with the Lord? First commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the core, this is the heart of the relationship between the sovereign and the vassal. This is a treaty between two parties, one having redeemed, one having purchased the other. By virtue of his election and his choice to save this people from another lord, that is Egypt, he commands undivided loyalty. And really, in reality, to break any of the commandments is always to break the first commandment. Because by breaking any commandment, you've chosen to put yourself above God because he makes an exclusive claim to lordship and to worship. This is the center of all things in this covenant. If I can put it this way, at the end of 1 John, the Apostle John tells the Christian, little children, keep yourself from idols. Every sin that you pursue, knowing that this is in rebellion to God, is idolatry. Because you're breaking that first command. You're pursuing something else other than God that would provide some sort of false security or feeling or pleasure. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. Now, this isn't talking merely about making other gods. This is talking more specifically about making an image of Yahweh, a representation of God as being uh, any likeness. And this is what will happen later in Exodus with the golden calf, right? That's not just a, it's not some sort of calf God. This is supposed to be the God who took you out of Egypt. It's a representation I know believers today who are uncomfortable with any artist's rendering of God or certainly the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want to see a painting of Jesus hanging in the church. They don't want to see a movie with somebody depicting the Lord Jesus Christ because they take this very, very seriously. And I have to respect that. I think it's no coincidence that in pseudo-Christian religions such as Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, the use of images and symbols and icons and statues is over the top. It's ridiculous. And what does this do? It causes confusion between the creator and that which is created. God is an invisible God. And he says, you will not make an image of me. You will not create some sort of finite picture that puts me in a box. This is idolatry. Verse 5, those who practice it are haters of God. And verse 6, those who obey love God. And if they would bow down to images like that, God will visit trouble to the third and fourth generations. That has been long debated. I think we can make this pretty simple. Idolatry has catastrophic consequences in a family. It just does. Anything the parents worship will lead the children down the same path and it will only get worse with each generation until a revival of faith happens. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
uh, literally in Hebrew, you shall not lift up the name of Yahweh your God unto emptiness or unto worthlessness. The name of God is an extension of his very personhood. It doesn't just represent him. It represents who he is. It represents his being. In the ancient Near East, the name of a person didn't just represent his qualities and his character, but it represented him. When a king placed his seal on a document, it was as if the king himself is there. Now, this is a vague commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I I think that God in his absolute divine genius made it vague so that we'll be just scared enough to try to obey it in every possible way we can think of. It's like a parent telling his kid, don't mess up. And like, what do you mean by that? I better not do anything wrong. That's genius. It is vague. It has many applications, though. It can include any careless use of God's name. The classic way we have always been brought up to, to apply this is not swearing, not having the name of God in a, in a word that is expressing disgust or anger. But it can also include attempts to manipulate God for human purposes. I rebuke you in Jesus' name. That's manipulating God. I want a Corvette in Jesus' name. That is taking God's name in vain. It can include daring to believe you speak for God prophetically. God told me to tell you. You can say, stop. I wouldn't have you disobey the third commandment. It can also carry the idea of being outwardly associated with God, yet not inwardly true and faithful. What does it mean when you take someone's name? A woman takes a husband's name. And if she isn't faithful to that husband, she has taken his name in vain, unto emptiness, unto worthlessness. But let's put it positively. Your desire to obey the third commandment is actually a test of the true inward reality of your faith, which we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. Because to the true believer, the Lord's name is intensely precious and delightful. Jesus, name above all names. We sing of his name. We, we love his name. How do you feel about the name of God? How do you feel about Yahweh? How do you feel about the hundreds of monikers that God gives to himself in the scriptures It should be precious and delightful. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This commandment is achieved by the ceasing of regular labor on the seventh day by the citizens, by the servants, even the working animals. And and God was very, very detailed here. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant. What is that doing? That's to try to prevent legalism. Well, I'm not doing any work, but I can make my kids go do it all. He says, no, you'll all stop. And there's multiple reasons and motives behind this. First of all, it's a memorial that God made everything in six days and rested on the seventh day. By the way, those uh, who believe in an old earth, millions of years that God created uh, in somehow over millions of years, they don't know what to do with the Sabbath command. Because every seven days we have a reminder that God created in six days. It was also to emphasize that creation established once and for all the sovereign claims of God as the only true God. This is intensely important in our knowledge of God. When you take away creation, you take away the uniqueness of God. He is the creator. The Sabbath was also meant to stimulate loyalty, that as you remembered that God created in six days, thus you remain loyal to him by following in that pattern. It also reflected that humanity is created to be God's vice regents over the earth, as we saw in Genesis 1, and that since he rested on the seventh day, so shall Israel. And by the way, in Hebrews 4, it will also have end times implications for a final Sabbath, a rest that all of God's people enter into through Christ and then ultimately into the kingdom. It serves as a sign of God's covenant with Israel. A sign unique to them and yet full of principles we could easily apply today, which I'll do shortly. There's a fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. This establishes that God has created the authority structures that are to be obeyed as an outworking of obedience to him. So we can't legitimately say, I'll obey God, I just won't obey you. Well, God told you to obey me. 
And so it establishes authority structure. Human parents are to be viewed as the very representatives of God on earth. And by honoring them, you're honoring God. This is how a five-year-old can honor God. All they have to do is obey their parents. And that's honoring God. God is serious enough about this that to dishonor your parents meant that you were violating the entire covenant and thus would not enjoy the blessings of the land. That all authority structures are to be respected is reflected in this principle here. And, and this is the spirit of what it means to have dominion under God's ultimate rule, that he sets up authority structures. And there's a key principle here, and that is that a child's primary influence is to be the family. And in context of all of Exodus, the family's primary influence is to be the community of faith. And that's it. The community of faith influences the family and the family influences the children. This reflects the reality that the atmosphere your children are in will impact them. It will be an influence. Some of those influences are going to feel attractive to children. If you let them around them long enough, you're going to fight battles. Influences like to be happy, I must have a boyfriend or girlfriend at an age many years before I'm ready to be married. Influences like to be happy, I must be with my friends all the time because heaven forbid if I'm 13, I can't be with a 15 or a 12 year old. Or to be happy, I must do 10,000 activities like all the overcommitted other families that I know. Those influences seep in and suddenly you find yourself fighting battles with your own kids and you go, wait a minute, you're 10, I'm the adult, this is not gonna happen. There's a simple but profound principle of child rearing easily applicable today. The child is influenced by the family and the family is influenced by the church. That's it. The idea of I want my child to have a lot of influences is completely unsupportable scripturally. All you're doing is playing with fire. That's it. There's a sixth commandment. You shall not murder. The Bible foresees this command coming as this is already part of the Noahic covenant, God told Noah in Genesis 9, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. That's the reason. That's the reason behind the sixth commandment because mankind is made in the image of God and to take another's life is to, is to impugn the very image of God himself. It's an attack against his image. Murder is an attack on the appointed representative of God on earth, meaning that appointed representatives are important. That's why burning the flag is a sin, because the flag of our nation, nation set up by God, is the appointed representative of our nation, and we don't burn it, because you're burning the thing it represents. And so to murder a human being is to essentially say, I want to murder the image of God. Seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. The marriage relationship is given as a gift by God and serves as a picture of the union between God and a genuine follower of God. To violate this relationship is to show that you're unfaithful to God. By the way, the Old Testament is full of references to spiritual adultery that we almost don't let our kids read. They're so stark. Exodus 35, God warns three times not to, quote, whore after other gods. The stark terms of adultery are are very clear. Adultery is perverting what is true with what is false. It's perverting what is good with what is evil. It's perverting what is pure with what is corrupt. It's the rupture of a covenant at the most horrific and terrible level because it's a rejection of the loved one for another who has no rightful claim. Of course, that becomes our picture of faithlessness before God. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. This is interesting because we learn from other places in Scripture that God owns everything. So how does this fit? Well, in the context of the sovereign or the suzerain-vassal relationship, all things which the vassals, the, the lesser people, possess really are the property of the sovereign. And therefore, what is expected is proper stewardship. To steal say, says that you believe something is inherently yours. To steal says that you reject where God has sovereignly placed you in the scheme of things. I have this much, I deserve to have this much. 
This firmly establishes that while humanity is the steward of resources, at a human level, there is a massive principle now that is put in place by this commandment of not stealing, and that is the sanctity of personal property. That's a massive principle. But that goes, just, that goes beyond interpersonal relationships. It goes beyond petty crime. This has huge societal implications. Can I put it this way? The basic human system of existence God has set up is capitalism. Because property ownership is the basis of capitalism and the means to create wealth. That's the system he set up. I'll give you an example. Straight income taxes are based on the Old Testament principle of the tithe of a a Levitical government that's supported by a tax. Romans 13 tells us to pay our taxes, and that is by inference an income tax. But property taxes are a problem. Property taxes violate the principle of you shall not steal because the government will use force to evict somebody off of land or out of their house for not paying the tax on the property that they already own. They, in effect, steal it. There's no place in Scripture that gives the government inherent land ownership of every territory. They only have the right to defend the helpless. That's what Romans 13 says government is for. Now, for the sake of peace and maintaining good testimony, don't go out and refuse to pay pay your property taxes. And when you get thrown off your your land and kicked out of your house, don't blame me. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us just live a quiet life, just fly under the radar, to put it in our terms today. We're going to pay our property taxes, but they do, in principle, violate this eighth commandment because the government says... If you don't give us money, we will steal from you. That's wrong. The ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In this context, your neighbor is your fellow Israelite. And so this is, this is very uh, easy to contextualize in our context here in the church. The narrow use is that you can't offer made-up testimony to injure a falsely accused person. This is why Deuteronomy 19 beginning in verse 15, says that multiple witnesses are necessary in a legal dispute. But more broadly, you can't slander someone. You can't stir up strife in the community of faith. You're not called to do that. Exodus 23.1, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Jesus brought forth this principle. He brought it forward into, uh, into the New Testament context in Matthew 18. In that when you have a problem with another person, you go to that person, not to others first. You don't go to someone else and say, do you think I should go to this person about this problem? You don't need to ask them. Jesus already answered that question. You just go quietly alone. And then finally, the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything that is your neighbor's. This is important because this is in the realm of the heart. This is the birthplace of all sin. Covetousness might exist in the mind and heart and never manifest itself, obviously, but it will eventually manifest itself in how you treat the one of whom you're jealous. It will. And this is important for us because this, is, this establishes covenant loyalty is extending not just to outward actions, but to obedience even to the heart level, to not think things that are displeasing to the Lord. Listen, the basic polytheist in the ancient Near East, they sort of figured that all of the gods around them, they could, they could get away with a few things because they never saw those gods as all-knowing. But God says, I know your very thoughts and I will condemn you for thinking sinful thoughts. This is a serious breach of covenant loyalty because God is all-knowing and rebellious thoughts are offensive to him. What is covetousness? It expresses dissatisfaction with the good gifts that God has given. I want more. It expresses pride in believing that you deserve more. It violates the sanctity of personal property and intimate relationships at the heart level. I want this thing that person has. I want this wife that person has. I want this husband that person has. It violates personal property sanctity. violates intimate relationships. So... All of life and godliness are covered in the Ten Commandments. There's there's nothing left out. It covers everything. 
We've sat to ponder how to think about the law. We've stood in awe of a fearsome and mighty God who accompanies the giving of his word with thunder and with lightning and clouds and smoke and earthquakes and threats. We read the scripture on Sunday morning. Sometimes I wish we could have a good lightning bolt on occasion just to really drive the point home that we're reading the law of God. This is the Bible we're talking about here. Well, we've walked in the law, which tells us how to walk with God. The New Testament took the idea of walking with God to an elevated similar metaphor. And what I'm about to show you should elevate our thinking beyond just walking with God to that of running. Running to his magnificence, running to his glory, running to his unchanging nature. So let's run to the Lord for a moment. Because I'd like to show you that the entire basis for the Ten Commandments is the holy moral essence of God himself. And that this has never changed, regardless of which age mankind is in dealings with God. God's holy moral character is reflected in right human thoughts, words, and deeds in every age, from the Garden of Eden all the way to Revelation 22. It's reflected in every covenant, whether it's before Moses, during Moses, or during the new covenant in Christ. God gave these specific expectations to his chosen ethnic nation of Israel. This is the nation through whom the world was to hear of God. And God has given specific expectations to Christians in the church age. And we perform these expectations out of love and duty to the Lord who has saved us, who is our redeemer, who is our sovereign, who is our suzerain. And at various times in human history, God has had some differing expectations and there's been a lot of overlap in expectations, but they're all based in his character. Here's some of the different expectations, just by way of example, all based in his character. Before Moses, animal sacrifices were expected as an act of worship by followers of God, Abel, Noah, Abraham, etc. Why? Because blood demands blood. And we are, by nature, We are those who have shed blood in our hearts. We are sinners and it demands blood. That is a universal principle. Unique to the Mosaic law in that era were the dietary laws. Those are an act of worship. Those are an act of covenant loyalty. And what were the dietary laws about? They were about being holy, being set apart, being different. That's universal. That is God's character that if he says, I am holy, therefore you are to be holy. The church age we live in now, we have unique expectations. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the institution of the church as a non-ethnic based people of God. The the revelation of what we have now is the New Testament, the law of Christ. These are unique to the church age and yet they still reflect the the loving covenant keeping character of God. In the coming millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ, Ezekiel 43 tells us that sacrifices will be instituted once again in Israel. The Bible doesn't tell us why, just that they will. All of these are God-ordained outworkings of his requirement in the context of whatever age or dispensation or covenant that you are in. These are the things that those who love him do because he's worthy to be obeyed. If you were suddenly transported in a time machine back to the time of Moses and the law is being given, what ought you to do? You ought to follow the Ten Commandments. You ought to follow the dietary laws. You ought to follow the laws of concerning your neighbors because you're in that time. And so there are some unique expectations depending on the age, depending on the covenant, but they're all based in God's character. But then there's overlap in expectations as well before Moses. God established the death penalty. Genesis 9 verse 6 reflecting the universal principle of caring for his image. This is universal across all the ages. During the time of the Mosaic law, Leviticus greatly emphasizes holiness to be God, to holy because God is holy. But that's always been God's standard. He's always demanded obedience beginning with Adam and Eve. The church age, now we have a a great emphasis on loving one another. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. But loving your neighbor has always been part of God's economy. He said, Cain, where is your brother? During the millennial kingdom, Zechariah 14, 17 tells us that pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship will once again be instituted worldwide. Why? Because this is where the king is. This is where the Lord Jesus Christ physically is residing. 
But all this is is an outworking of the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. It's a universal principle for all ages. Is the character of God the same across whatever law you may be under? Yes. Let me show you. First commandment. No other gods. Before Moses, Genesis 35, 2, Jacob told his family, put away the foreign gods that are among you. That's before the law. The New Testament reiterates the first commandment. Paul praised the church at Thessalonica because they had, according to 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Second commandment, no graven images or idols. Before Moses, Jacob's uncle Laban was upset because someone in Jacob's family had stolen his gods, his idols, and he wanted them back. It's idolatry. The New Testament reiterates this. John warned the church, as I mentioned earlier, 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols, from worshiping anything other than God, any image of a career, any image of a certain 401k level, any image of a house, any image of anything that would come between you and God. The third commandment, not taking the Lord's name in vain. Before Moses, Genesis 24, Abraham's servant was charged to find a wife for Isaac, and Abraham made him, quote, swear by Yahweh, God of heaven and of the earth, as the ultimate name to honor and to respect. The New Testament reiterates the importance of the name. Jesus said in Luke twenty-one seventeen, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And he told the parable of the soils that some will spring up with a false faith, but when persecution comes, they'll fall away, meaning they called themselves Christians, followers of Christ, followers of the name. But it was in vain. It was empty. The fourth commandment, the Sabbath, before Moses, God himself rested on the seventh day after creation. That's a clear, timeless principle there. The New Testament reiteration there is no specific Sabbath command to Saturday, binding the believer in Christ as this was the sign of the Israelite covenant, the Mosaic covenant, in the same way that the Israelites didn't partake of the Lord's Supper as we did this morning because that's a sign of the new covenant. And so there's no overlap there. But let me give you two thoughts. First of all, Hebrews 4 uses the idea of Sabbath to point to the ultimate reality of resting in the salvation of God. That the Sabbath ultimately pictures our spiritual rest in God. But a little bit even more practically for our day-to-day life, Acts 20 verse 7 saw the church gathering on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the day of Christ's resurrection, to receive the Lord's table together and to hear the preached word. 1 Corinthians 16.2 saw the Lord's day as the day when offerings were to be given to the Lord. And the Lord's day was the day chosen by Christ to appear to John for the final revelation from heaven. Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And whom did Jesus Christ address on the Lord's day? Who did he preach to in Revelation 2 and 3 on Sunday? He preached to the church. We're not under Sabbath law, but we are to devote the Lord's Day to gathering together as the church for corporate worship. The precedent for that is clear in the New Testament. Fifth commandment, obey your parents. Before Moses, Genesis 27, Jacob and Esau were eager for their father's blessing. They were eager for honor to come from him because of their honor to him. Isaac obeyed Abraham in Genesis 22 all the way to the point of offering himself as a sacrifice. New Testament reiteration, this is the easiest one. Ephesians 6.1, the fifth commandment is repeated verbatim, in quotes. It goes across the ages. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Before Moses, Genesis 4, God condemned Cain for murdering Abel. New Testament reiteration takes it even to the heart level. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Whoa. I go to church, but I'm mad at this guy. I'm going to stay mad at him. Really, the Bible says you're going to go to hell if you keep doing that because you're proving that you're not saved. Seventh, you shall not commit adultery. Before Moses, Genesis 39, 
Joseph didn't say when Potiphar's wife said, come into me. Uh, Joseph didn't say, isn't this great? Ten commandments haven't been written yet. I'm free. He said, no. Your husband, my master, has been kind and good to me. I will not violate his trust. New Testament reiteration, 1 Corinthians 6, adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Before Moses, Genesis 44 speaks of theft deserving the death penalty. The New Testament reiteration to the church even. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness before Moses. Genesis 39 again, Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of rape and had him thrown into prison. This was wrong. The New Testament reiteration, Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And the 10th commandment, no coveting before Moses. Genesis 27, Jacob wanted his brothers Esau's blessing and his birthright and he was willing to use trickery and guile to get it. Genesis 12, God condemned and punished Pharaoh for wanting Abram's wife. The New Testament reiteration, Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. The holy essence and character of God never changes. And because of this, we see the Ten Commandments reiterated in the New Testament, nine of them directly in the Sabbath command in somewhat altered form in the context of the New Covenant. Well, if we wanted to go from sitting to standing to walking to running, very quickly, how about we go to flying? The ultimate manifestation of the holy essence of God of course is for us to fly to the Lord Jesus Christ and we fly as quickly as we can to him because we have violated God's law of any and every age let me put it this way the debate of which law am I under am I under the the old testament law or the new testament law well it doesn't matter you'll be condemned under whichever law you're under And you can ask the Lord, uh, excuse me, before you send me to hell, uh, which law specifically was it that you're using as a basis to send me to hell? Just wanted to know. Well, it's the law of Christ. Okay, thank you. Go ahead. No, that's not going to be the case. You, You have a problem, and that is that you've desecrated and dishonored his holy name. But we fly to the Lord Jesus Christ because when he came to earth as one, Galatians 4, born under the law, he never put another God before Yahweh. He never worshiped a graven image. He never took the Lord's name in vain. He always obeyed the Sabbath law as the Lord of the Sabbath. He always honored his earthly parents and did all his heavenly father sent him to do. He never murdered, never had a murderous thought. He never dishonored a woman. He never stole anything and he even paid his taxes. He never bore false witness but was the truth and he never coveted that which he could not have on this earth even when Satan offered him every kingdom of earth, he said, I don't want it. And in fact, Jesus died as one falsely accused of violating the first commandment, which violates all of them. And we have lived as those who actually have violated all of the law of God in any and every age. I don't care whether you believe you're under the Ten Commandments or not, you violated whatever law you're under. And by justifying us through the shed blood and resurrection of Christ, God the Father now views you as he does Christ as a perfect law keeper. That by the grace of God and the merits of Christ, you are viewed as if you have never one time disobeyed God. And because of this, as Psalm 15 asks, who shall dwell with God? The answer is he who walks blamelessly Because of Christ in the eyes of God, you have walked blamelessly. You have kept all of the commandments, regardless of what age you want to argue you're under. You've kept them all in Christ. Amen. Our Father, we thank you so much for the clear picture of your holiness, your uniqueness, your awe, your might, your majesty, your splendor, your purity, your righteousness, your justice your hatred of sin, your love of 
holiness and righteousness. Your law reveals who you are in such clear terms. It paints a picture for us, Lord, of a God who is so worthy of our worship, so worthy for us to pursue and to deeply desire and yearn to look at and to fellowship with. And so, Lord, we praise you and thank you that we who are lawbreakers, we who have, from the moment we could make a moral choice, made the wrong ones. We who are guilty of, as uh, James 2 says, that if we have broken one commandment, we've broken them all. We have violated the first commandment. We have had other gods before you 10,000 times over. And yet, in Christ, we have violated none. In Christ, we stand before you, welcomed into the house of God, welcomed into the holy people of God, welcomed into the home of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because in you, because of Christ, you view us, and this is just a tremendous thought, as those who have never once besmirched your name. Eternity will not be long enough to thank you. Thank you, Lord, for justifying us through Christ and making us appear to be law keepers. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.